Welcome to Flaps Podcast. Hello and welcome to another Flaps Podcast. Yes, we're not dead, we're just lazy. It's an Easter extravaganza. Another in a rare series of what have become exclusive podcasts. What are you doing? Well, it's Easter and I'm very excited to have this new podcast. Oh, I see. Every time you mention Easter or eggs, that thing goes ding. Yeah. Hmm, let me have a go. In this edition, we're speaking to the ultimate aviator, an actual astronaut. I'm not yoking. I'm not yoking. Why didn't it go off? Well, Mark, it only goes off if, if it's any good. It's very exacting. Anyway, we speak to an actual astronaut. The skills that I learned as an air cadet in gliders stood me in good stead right through to docking with a spaceship. That's Commander Chris Hadfield from out of space. We've also got Pablo Mason, our experienced aviator. He used to scramble his squadron. No. How fantastic to look down at Earth from the windows of the space shuttle and to see not just counties, but whole blooming continents. And we hear from Fly Alive, which took place in Telford at an exhibition centre. Calm down, Mark, you're getting exasperated now. There was a stunned silence on the airwaves for about five seconds before another voice just said, yeah, mate, you can't say on the radio. And we talk to the CAA. They've got some important information to share and they're not yoking. Elliot, this podcast sounds cracking. Cracking! What have I got to do? Yes, it's another Flaps podcast as rare as hen's teeth. Foxtrot, Lima, Alpha, Papa. Flaps. So, Chris Hadfield, author, singer, pilot, social media sensation, and, oh, commander of the International Space Station. Hello. Very good, thank you. Now, let's mention the stats. Two space shuttle missions, five months on the ISS, two spacewalks, 166 days in space, and 35 years as a military pilot and then astronaut. Now, we at Flaps like space as much as the next geek, but um, let's go back to the beginning. What made you want to be a pilot? I always wanted to be an astronaut, right? From the time I can remember, I, I, I made a conscious decision uh, when I was nine years old that uh, I wanted to fly in space. And even at that age, I realized that fly was a verb. And, and so I, uh, I thought, well, I should learn to fly. And, and I pursued it right from the teenage years, uh, air cadets and, and uh, learning to fly and, and then uh, joining to the Royal Canadian Air Force after that. Because you earned a glider pilot scholarship at 15, didn't you? And then a powered pilot scholarship at 16. So. I did, yeah. The, uh, the air cadet program is pretty similar in Canada, I think. Uh, you can join at about 13, and it runs till you're about 18. And, and they offer all sorts of training, uh, leadership and discipline, but also a lot of things to do with aviation. And in my case, a chance in one, uh, one summer's training to, uh, to qualify for my glider pilot's license, and then the next summer to qualify for uh, my powered airplane license, which uh, couldn't have been a better start, really, for a career pilot and uh, aviator like myself. What happened to you then? You became a military pilot, didn't you? I decided to, uh, to join the Air Force. Um, my father is a pilot, and uh, he flew commercially. He flew for Air Canada. And, and then both my brothers uh, actually decided to do the same thing, and they are both commercial pilots. And my sister-in-law is a private pilot, and my nephew is a pilot for Air Canada. So I, I was really the, uh, the odd man out. But 
I always wanted to not just fly in the atmosphere, but fly above it. And so I, I looked in my teenage years and thought, what, you know, what, what really challenges me and what are the odds? And uh, I thought, study at university, get a degree, because you're, you're only one physical away from losing your permit to fly at any moment, so better to have some backup skills. But then uh, if I actually was going to have a chance to fly in space, then I would need to take my flying to another level. And so join the Air Force and managed to qualify all the way through to fly as a fighter pilot, and I flew CF-18s for NORAD, uh, intercepting Soviet bombers in North American airspace for several years. Mm, we'll come back to that in a moment. You became a test pilot, didn't you? Well, um, in order to fly uh, as an astronaut, pretty much everything you do is test flying. Uh, the spaceships are not proven. They're still very new vehicles, mm. and they're, they're quite heavily modified from flight to flight. Even my third flight, which was as the pilot of, of a Soyuz spaceship, which, which flies great, by the way, but um, it, it's, it requires people with a, a very deep and technical flying background. And so I had always had in mind that I would like to go to test pilot school. Uh, I wrote to test pilots when I was a teenager to ask, you know, what, what sort of work do you do? What, how interesting is it? What do you get paid? What, you know, what's it like? And and it all sounded like a nice combination to me of the engineering side, but also of the the operational flying side. And luckily enough, I was uh, selected. Canada sends almost no one to test pilot school, maybe one or two people a year. But I was chosen to go to test pilot school, and I spent a year uh, on exchange with the U.S. Air Force. Their their test pilot school is up in the high desert in California at, uh, at Edwards Air Force Base. And so, yeah, I... I uh, trained and qualified as a test pilot um, at, at Edwards Air Force Base. It was a really, really interesting year. All that, and you get paid for it as well. <laughs> yeah, now, you've, you've had your moments of fun, haven't you? Because you once passed out flying the Hornet. Well, you don't pass out. The G-forces are high enough that you deliberately black yourself out. It, hmm. It's much more brutal than passing out. And, and in order to fight it in a high-performance airplane, We've learned since, really, since the Second World War, when airplanes became powerful enough that they could, if you started pulling back on the stick in an older airplane, it couldn't sustain the forces for very long. But when we started building high-performance airplanes, you could sustain the force long enough with all the extra load on your body mm. that it would drain all the blood out of your head, and you'd force yourself to go unconscious. And we learned from that. It was actually a Canadian invented this suit, an anti-G suit, a guy named... Uh, Franks, who, who um, and he filled it with water initially, just squeezes the lower half of your body. And we wore one of those, which was pneumatic, air-driven in an F-18, but mine had come unplugged inadvertently. And when I was in an air fight practicing, uh, I pulled back on my stick, and I woke up 16 seconds later. And fortunately, uh, in, in that time when I'd pulled back on the stick, I'd, I'd gone up instead of down. Otherwise, I uh, wouldn't be doing this talk with you today. Yeah, l luck, isn't it, really? Yeah, a part of it is luck, for sure. Now, tell us about that time that you intercepted the uh, the, the Tu-35, the bear, uh, in Canadian airspace. Yes, uh, the Cold War, of course, was a combination of, of uh, real um, threatening activity and a lot of feints and, and feeling out and testing other people's capabilities and demonstrations of capability. And... Uh, part of what the Soviet Union would do, especially in the 80s, was to fly uh, armed bombers in practice cruise missile launches on North America. And they'd come down through the gap that's in between Greenland and uh, Iceland, 
and come down, and they have to get close enough so that then their cruise missiles could reach to all of the important um, destinations and targets in North America. And obviously, our job in defense of the continent was to be able to intercept the bombers before they got there. And then sometimes the bombers would just be on their way down to Cuba. And, and But if you draw a straight line from uh, Arkhangelsk and, and follow the Great Circle route down to Cuba. It goes over Canada, so they would sort of skirt Canada, but they would definitely come into our our air identification zone. And so my job was to hold 24/7 alert, and we would sleep with the airplanes. And at uh, at any given moment in the middle of the night, the horn would go off. In 12 minutes, we had to be airborne from a dead sleep to having an F-18 in the air in 12 minutes. And then we would scramble out to the East Coast and uh, get a briefing and then go out and intercept the bombers as they came trundling down the North Atlantic. And I did that eight different times, including um, the first ever uh, intercept with with our new CF-18s of one of the big Tupolev bombers. And what do you do? Do you, do you pull alongside and waggle your wings and hold some fingers up or what? Well, the the tactic by which you intercept them, of course, uh, they're a non-cooperative target, so you, you need to be very cautious. And uh, you're getting some vectoring from NORAD, who, who are all uh, either in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado or at the time they were in North Bay in Ontario. And they'd be watching all the blips and giving you the best info they could. But essentially... You start out well astern, you close from behind, and then you pull out onto the right side and pull up abreast of the uh, of the big bomber on his wing. And we modified the Canadian F-18 so they have a great, enormously powerful searchlight, and you could flick it on with your baby finger. So once you got into position, you could uh, flick this little uh, switch, and it would bathe the big bear bomber in um, in light. And then we would our main purpose was. To sh- and my F-18 was fully armed with uh, heat-seeking uh, and radar missiles as well as bullets. And and so we show our capability to at least uh, make an effort at defending ourselves, but also just to gather information. What type, what variant of the bear is it? Is it just the anti-submarine version, or is it the long-range communication, or is it a cruise missile launching version? And then... Um, and then escort them until they left Canadian airspace. And fortunately, in all those cases for me, there, there was never any real intent. It was just sort of a probing and feeling or transit flight back and forth. So, so I didn't have to uh, do anything aggressive more than just demonstrate my country's ability to defend itself. Much of learning to fly is, is training for what might go wrong, but some things you really can't prepare for. I love the story in the book about, uh, and let's talk snakes in a plane, the story in the book about, um, well, the snake, the snake in the plane. I was flying a, a light twin, actually, a beach baron and, uh, with a friend, and uh, flying along, and it was over the southern United States, down by the Johnson Space Center in Houston, where, where we would live and work and train. And I felt, uh, I was wearing uh, shorts, and, and I felt a brushing against my leg just above my sandals. Uh-huh. And when I, when I looked <laughs> down, it wasn't just a dangling wire from my, from my communications <laughs> cap or something. It was a snake, a snake. Uh, <laughs> rearing up and, and, uh, and against my leg, which caused a pretty startled reaction yeah. out of me and, and my buddy and I. And we managed to pin its head against the floor with a little checklist and then grab it just behind the head. And then what do you do? Now you have a live snake in the cockpit of a little unpressurized airplane with you. And we sort of figured 
that snake was less threat to everybody outside our cockpit than it was inside our cockpit. So we opened that, just that little um, little window porthole that, that mm. most of those airplanes have next to the left seat. And uh, I opened it. You listen in all the rush of the air and the noise of the engines. And my friend leaned over and stuffed the snake out the window, and then we closed it again. And, and <laughs> much relieved in the cockpit. I'm sure the you snake were. Had a, at a two-mile fall down Ooh. somewhere into the wilderness of Florida. So hopefully he fell to a, a harmless area, but that wasn't my concern at the time. No, I guess not. I guess all the training in the world can't prepare for that, apart from don't panic, really. Well, yeah, just, you know, what's a real threat and fly the airplane. Number one thing you always mm, need fly. to remember to do is fly the airplane, even if a snake is brushing against your leg. <laughs> now, what's the transition like from flying gliders to pistons to jets and then to rockets? I think uh, all transitions in flying, uh, so long as you do them incrementally and you understand your current vehicle really well, it seems sort of natural. And uh, one thing I really learned as a test pilot is all airplanes are fundamentally the same. And just, you know, show me how to start this one and show me and I'll figure it out. And at first you, you sort of feel a big difference between airplanes, but after a while you realize it's sort of the same as rental cars. You know, they're all fundamentally the same. You just have to find all the buttons and knobs on this one and see how it handles. And it, it's even then eventually true. Once you get to a certain level of, of experience, then uh, whether it's a, a one-seat glider or flying a, an Airbus or a, or a 747 or something, they're all essentially the same. And then spaceships just take that to another degree because um, your uh, pressurization system isn't just a nice thing. It's, it's your life. And, and how the vehicle uh, navigates and maneuvers becomes quite different. And a spaceship that's maneuvering in the atmosphere is a lot like an airplane. But a spaceship that's above the atmosphere is then quite different. So it, it's just sort of like uh, moving through the alphabet or climbing blocks to a higher and higher level. They're all very closely related. The skills that I learned as an air cadet in gliders stood me in good stead right through to docking with a spaceship. But it's just a slow increase uh, in complexity and capability every step along the way. Mm. Now, what was more stressful, your, your first space launch or your first solo? Well, stress is, is a human reaction to a situation. And um, you can reduce your stress to zero if you're completely comfortable and, and prepared. And uh, I tried for both my first solo and my first space flight to be as completely prepared as I possibly could. And the risk was, I mean, they both carry the ultimate risk. If you mess it up, you, you'd crash and die. So there's a very high um, potential consequence out of it. And it's worth taking seriously. I, I think uh, no pilot should ever be flying his airplane uh, listening to music mm -hmm. or, or or, you know, doing something apart from flying the airplane. The, the airplane is, uh, is your responsibility, and it's why you have a license. And so I've always taken it seriously. And um, which one was I least prepared for is probably what you're asking me. And it was probably my very first solo, because you're very unproven. You're also very young. I, I was only 15 or something. And so, it, you know, it's, it's not a stage of life where you have a lot of laurels to rest on. Whereas by the time I flew in space, I, I was deeply experienced in, in flying. And the amount of work that the space agencies, especially NASA, had done to get me ready to fly was, was um, unprecedented. So I was probably uh, uh, more stressed 
for my first solo, but probably for my first flying exam more than anything, because that's such a big variable. You don't know how it's going to go. But they all build on each other, and and now uh, uh, I, I take flying very seriously, but I try not to let it be a stressful thing. Now, how much would you have liked to have been able to pilot the orbiter, the space shuttle orbiter, back to the ground, as as you said before, a huge glider? Oh, I would have loved to have actually uh, been the commander of the space shuttle, but of course it's an American vehicle, and so you you need to be an American to do that, just as I would have liked to have been the commander of the Soyuz spaceship, but it's a Russian vehicle, so you need to be a Russian to command it. So I'm not too worried about it. I I was uh, very involved in flying both vehicles and qualified in, in the simulator countless times for launch and maneuvering and docking and landing, so I now have all of the skills necessary. Um, but I, I count myself hugely lucky to have flown in space and to have commanded the International Space Station, uh, especially as a Canadian. So, uh, yeah, there are, there are things I would have liked to do in life, but, uh, but I don't, I don't uh, <laughs> ruminate over them much. Presumably you, you still fly now. What, what do you fly? I fly uh, an F-86 Sabre, which was sort of the original single-seat supersonic jet fighter. And uh, it's a lovely airplane. There's only one flying in Canada, and I'm lucky enough to fly it. Uh, But, of course, I don't fly it enough to stay current. And so I also fly a few other airplanes just to keep currency up. My brother has an old Fairchild, which is a lovely, big radial engine airplane. And then my dad has an old Cessna 170, which is a very nice uh, tail dragger to fly also. And then I fly... Uh, a friend in Toronto has a, a Cirrus, which is a very modern single-seat airplane, and so I fly those. So I, I, I keep my currency up in all of those. Do, do astronauts keep a keep a, a logbook, a flying logbook? Uh, I don't know. I know this astronaut doesn't. Uh, <laughs> to me, keeping a logbook was important when I was gaining qualifications, and and where at some point in my life someone was going to say to me, "Well, show me your logbook, prove it." Somewhere along the way, that became less important. You know, I, I just I just wasn't too worried about it. Well, I guess your uh, your um, space exploits can be independently verified if people want to check them out, can't they? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Canadian astronaut and author of two great books, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, and you are here around the world in 92 minutes. Chris Hadfield, Commander Chris Hadfield, thank you for being on Flaps Podcast. My pleasure. Nice to talk with you. Flaps, in the air, everywhere. Towards the end of last year, the Flyer Live event took place. It's a replacement for the annual flying show and it moved venue from the NEC near Birmingham to the Telford International Centre. As ever, it catered for the needs of the GA pilot. The flying stores were there, there were speakers with a variety of presentations, Flyer magazine was of course there in force and there was a fine selection of aircraft on display. One of the speakers was Paul Katanak, who writes the Bush Pilot column for Flyer and has also got a book out called Gone Bush. And Mark spoke to him. I learned to fly at, I suppose, a fairly late age. I was 30 when I took my first trial flying lesson on a whim. Uh, bitten by the bug and uh, my wife agreed I could have my PPL for my 30th birthday. Uh, after that it just, as with many people, once you're, once you're flying the bug bites and I decided to go commercial. And then you went to Australia? Well, yes, um, my wife's Australian, we were emigrating anyway uh, and I just decided that if I was going to emigrate I might as well change my career at the same time. So I did my commercial training in Australia. I didn't become a bush pilot immediately, I, I instructed for a couple of years uh, at a place called Coolangatta which is on the Gold Coast. Uh, very civilised, very urban, but was then offered a job based in Darwin up in the Northern Territory. Started out flying an old clapped-out Cessna 210, uh, hauling half a tonne of newspapers at night down to Alice Springs, stopping off en route. 
and then working our way back for the next two days carrying small parcels, bank bags, you know, the sort of FedEx, if you like, of the bush. Uh, what's it like flying above sometimes the desert? It's very much, you very much live on your wits in some places. You are, you know, on your own if you land somewhere and the aircraft breaks um, or you need to solve a problem, then you need to be resourceful. Uh, it does keep you, it, um, it does keep you on your toes. It's, it's fantastic. It's the best flying I've ever done. Pure flying terms, it was the best flying I ever did. It just also happened to be the worst paid. So give me some idea of uh, the kind of experiences. Tell us some of the stories that you've had in your time uh, flying in Australia. I think the first one which triggered me writing the column and the stories was the one where a passenger smuggled a bottle of rum on board um, and proceeded to drink most of it in a very short flight. Got quite aggressive and thought it would be a good idea to attack the pilot. And the only way I could disarm him because I was strapped in the seat was to turn off the autopilot and then push and pull the controls quite hard and throw him against the ceiling and the floor. Um, which aircraft was this? Uh, that was in a Cessna 402, a sort of light twin, 12-seater type thing. It was him and one of his friends. Now, his friend was fast asleep, slept through the entire thing. Uh, <laughs> when we landed, and he'd passed out by then, um, the police arrived, took him away, and it transpired that there was a warrant out for his arrest because he used to attack taxi drivers with bottles. So it was obviously his MO. He was going to hit me with this thing. Just uh, at 9,000 feet? At 9,000 feet. What he was going to do after that, I don't know, and I'm pretty sure he hadn't thought it through either. So that's uh, one of the more hair-raising experiences. What, what's happened on a more, uh, a more calm level? On a normal day, um, the freight uh, would have been what you or I would consider to be mundane stuff, the sort of thing we'd pop to the shops for. But when you live out, as they say, beyond the black stump. You know, anything you want has to be ordered in. So we would often carry uh, boxes of fresh fruit and vegetables, car parts, windscreens, everything you can imagine you would need in you know, a day-to-day -day life. Uh, some places we would drop in uh, a town called Tennant Creek, which is in the middle of the Tanami Desert. It's a big mining region and often without warning, security guards would arrive with gold bullion, uh, which would just be put into the airplane. I was pretty sure that one of these boxes was worth more than the entire aircraft. And we were just told to fly it to another town. It would, you know, go on, to, and then it would, that would be fed to larger aircraft, which would then ferry it on to the larger cities, and that's how stuff got around. I can imagine, and I'm sure you would never do this. That there's always, on that kind of environment, a push to maybe overload an aircraft. The loading was interesting because Cessna 210s are are built as passenger planes, but what they did was they ripped all the seats out except mine. They were kind enough to leave me a seat, <laughs> and then you were given. Um, it was like if you've ever seen, you know, the. the um, military films where this is my rifle, I will sleep with it. You were given a freight net and that went everywhere with you. You would put this freight net up in the aeroplane to hold back all these boxes and cartons and things. It was like th it was like Tetris in 3D. I don't think Tetris had been invented then, but it was it, that's what it was like. You got very, very good at getting lots and lots of stuff into a small space. Now, Paul, Australians, they're uh, a lot less formal in their use of the English language. What are they like when they talk on, on the radio? It's interesting, when I first arrived in Australia permanently, I've been there several times, um, but when I arrived permanently I was welcomed at the flying school uh, by one of the instructors with the ubiquitous, you know, g'day you pommy bastard, but it was a term of endearment. Uh, on the radio, uh, springs to mind, I was flying into Darwin at the end of a working day um, and I was waiting to call up for my clearance to speak to the uh, traffic controllers so I could enter the zone and land. The guy ahead of me called up, was given his clearance, read it back as you're supposed to, and must have dropped something or done something wrong in the cockpit, but forgot to let go of the push to talk switch because the last thing we heard him say was, ah, f Immediately the controller was onto him. She was new, she was keen, and she cited chapter and verse of the air navigation order as to why profanity was forbidden. Um, there was a stunned silence on the airwaves for about five seconds before another voice just said, yeah, mate, you can't say f on the radio. 
which was then followed by about half a dozen other people saying things like, who said f stop saying f I didn't f say f it just went on and on. I'd have joined in if I weren't crying at the time. I couldn't, just couldn't speak. Only in Australia. I've not heard it anywhere else. I mean, it's, it's, um, and it's a story I tell, I know, I was there. Some people don't believe it, but it, it was one of the funniest moments I've ever had in an aeroplane. <laughs> So after five years in Australia, uh, you, you came back to the UK and, and what, got a flying job here? That was the plan. Um, it was a trap. I was offered a job with one of the budget airlines who were just starting to grow at the time. So I did. I came back. But unfortunately, the CAA, in their infinite wisdom, decided that an Australian airline transport pilot's licence wasn't as good as a UK one. Of course not. Of course not. Um, they also decided several other things like meteorology is different in the Northern Hemisphere. Physics are different in the Northern Hemisphere. Given that I used to teach commercial pilots theory, I was quite surprised that they would you know, mess with the physics. But anyway, I had to take 14 exams to, to convert my licence and two flight tests, which took longer and cost more than it did to get my commercial licence in Australia in the first place. By the time I'd done that, the job I'd come back for had disappeared. So what happened then? I panicked. <laughs> we had nowhere to live. Um, when we'd emigrated, it was just my wife and I, we could pretty much you know, live on uh, baked beans and pot noodle if we wanted to. But when we came back, we had children, and so the situation was a bit different. I took on lots of jobs, any jobs, lorry driving, deliveries, working in warehouses, that sort of thing, while applying for flying jobs, and was eventually offered one flying bizjets. I suppose like most people who think of becoming a commercial pilot, we all look at airlines and expect to fly Boeings and Airbuses. So I took this as a, as a, a temporary measure, as a fill-in, until a proper job came along. Actually, it was the best step I ever made because uh, you couldn't get me out of BizJets now with a crowbar and I, I wouldn't choose to fly for an airline. It's not my type of thing. You know, different horses for courses and it's not me. And what does the future hold for you? I'm staying where I am. Um, the job I have at the moment is in our arm of aviation, the, the BizJet world, is one of the best kept secrets. Um, I work for some very nice people, with some very nice people. I happen to be the boss, so I get away with what I want, really. And it's great. It's, it's the job that I'll stay doing until retirement. And in the meantime, for fun, I fly my little aeroplane, I have a biplane, um, and keep writing, I suppose. A few minutes ago, you heard Chris Hadfield talking about his time as a pilot and as a spaceman. Our very own Pablo Mason has flown pretty much everything, but one thing he's never done is gone into orbit. It's Mason's Minute. Would I like to have done that? You betcha. When Michael was, my Michael, my son, was a youngster in his late teens, I took him to Florida for a week. Uh, he shared the flight deck with me in the days when um, pilots weren't protected by lead-lined doors and all the rest of the paraphernalia, which has little use. And during the week that we were there, we spent three or four days at the Space Centre at Houston. And each of us, at the end of the day, thinking that the other was bored enough not to want to go again. And each of us desperate to go the next day to see more and to see much of the same that we had done again. I remember seeing the gantry that uh, Shepard had walked along on his way to get into his spaceship in the 60s and to look out of his little window as he orbited stuff and became world famous. And just standing on this gantry gave me the most electric buzz. And then looking in this IMAX film centre of what you could see from the windows of the space shuttle, how incredible, how fantastic to look down at Earth and to see not just counties and towns and villages, not just 
countries, small ones, but whole blooming continents, whole oceans, millions and millions of people, a whole atmosphere going from blue into black, and once again feeling that it's all mine. So go in a shuttle? Well, if I win the Euro Millions, then I know where the first 50 million quid's going. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. You know what? Pablo could have been an astronaut. Could he? Yeah. NASA, though, couldn't find a helmet big enough to accommodate his massive tash. Oh. OK, back to the International Centre at Telford for more from Fly Alive. The most eye-catching exhibit... Oh, not again! Sorry. The most eye-catching thing there was the BJJR Bulldog. It's a brand new gyrocopter and it caught everyone's attention in its British racing green livery. It looked a bit like a cross between uh, Little Nelly from the Bond film You Only Live Twice, but it had a, a honking big radial engine stuck on the front of it. Mark spoke to Barry Jones, its developer. Well, um, my inspiration is uh, from a wacko, radial engined classic lines on the aircraft, um, apart from the cantilever tail to support the rotor. Uh, and that came about really because I wanted to make sure the pilots uh, or the passenger had a great view, didn't have a sort of beam sitting up in front of them to support the rotor. Because unlike other gyros I can see here, uh, this is one where you sit pilot and passenger line astern. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think there's a, an era of aviation that people see as romantic and adventurous and, and it's pre-1940s really. Um, hence, I went for the radial engine. Um, it's, that's, that not only has a sound that everybody just seems to love, but also a look about it, especially when you put a nice wooden prop on the front like this one from Hercules propellers. It um, truly is eye-catching. And I can just tell by, by looking at this that there's a lot of, of love and dreams gone into this, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, ten years I've had this idea in my head, and about five years ago, in my mind, I, I could touch every part of it. Um, and then this year, um, beginning of this year, we started making her. And then for the first time, she existed in April. Um, and it took me, I have to say, I, I did spend hours with a cup of tea in my hand sitting looking at it because suddenly it was, it was there, it was real. So what's the, what's the structure of it then? It looks like it's carbon fibre. Yeah, it's a carbon fibre monocoque tub. So Formula One technology being used in this. Um, I have a partner company called EPM Technology up in Derby. They make Formula One cars amongst other things. And we use that technology to get this shape um, uh, with enough strength to hold the radial on the front and the the mast at the rear. So it's very strong, very light, I guess, as well, then? Yeah. Um, the target weight for this aircraft, for regulation, is to try and meet 560 kilos. And that gives it UK B-car Section T clearance, which is the CEA's standard, and it's the world leader in, in uh, engineering design for autogyros. So even Europe is, is using that as their benchmark for this is, this is how to design things properly. A lot of the mass is obviously at the front with the engine here, um, and being a, being a gyro, the, 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 the rotors aren't, aren't powered, are they? So there's nothing really, am I being naive here? There's not much going on at the back there, is there? No, you're absolutely right. There's, there's hardly anything going on at the back. Um, the pilot sits in the rear seat, counterbalancing the engine in the front, but gyros should hang uh, about seven degrees nose down if you were to hang it from the rotor and not power the engine. Um, that was a tip from the fantastic Wing Commander Ken Wallace, who uh, sadly died a couple of years back, but uh, who flew a little Nelly in the James Bond film. Um, but yeah, nothing going on in the back really, apart from a couple of cables that control the direction of the rotor head. So if I ask the question, I'm going to get slapped for, I know, what's it like to fly? <laughs> yeah, I want to slap you for that because she didn't start flying until May. Um, but gyros are really, they're really 
quite special to fly because the, the blades are in what's called auto-rotation, which is the safety feature designed into all helicopters should they have engine failures. But um, you do find yourself looking at them, being, being an experienced helicopter pilot myself, looking at the rotor, spinning away, happily holding you up there, thinking, that's just nature doing that. It's, it's quite an unusual feeling. But it gives you such a broad flight envelope as well. And it feels like you're working with nature rather than fighting it. Whereas in a helicopter, you do feel like you've beaten the air into submission. Um, gyros seem much more sedate. So you're going to uh, start flying her in May. Mm. Who's going to be part of the controls? Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Pat Miller, he's ex-Empire Test Pilot, known as the best pilots in the world go to Empire Test Pilot School at Boscombe Down. So we used to work together when we were in the military uh, and we've stayed in touch. So I think it's, it's right to get that independence. Uh, plus he, he'll, he'll give a uh, constructive debrief in a, in a really set format that, other, that the regulatory authorities will understand as well, being a, a, a qualified test pilot. And what's your ambition for the aircraft design? I guess you would say it is a cafe racer. It's um, to try and attract attention to autogyros so that people, when they see rotors, they don't naturally think helicopter and that there is another way of doing it. Um, it is the top of the market, but it's also our launching product because it's going to allow us to do all sorts of different things that we've got lined up for autogyros in the coming years. So I think really it's an attention grabber. Um, limited market, limited run, um, but um, what else comes out of the company is uh, we're quite excited about as well, but we can't avail that yet. Attention grabber, you say. I was going to ask you, this must have got everybody walking past, stopping and saying hello. Yeah, um, well, we first unveiled her in uh, the Aero 2015 show in Friedrichshaven in April, uh, which is a bit like um, the Farnborough of general aviation, if you like. Um, 14 hangars full of new aircrafts and ideas. And uh, the comments from that was that we stole the show. Um, so that was a whole week long and it was absolutely shattering. A little bit smaller scale here in Telford, obviously, but it has been growing year on year. but. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it, it does attract uh, people um, to just, just come and marvel at her. A lot of people thinking she's an original as well that's been restored um, until obviously they see, read the signs and realise it's brand new design. And proudly British, as I say, British Racing Green. There's a bulldog sat under, under the, uh, under the uh, right-hand wheel there. Obviously, uh, as, a, as a proud former army pilot yourself, you know, chuffed to be a British manufacturer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, the latest e-conditions that the CAA have released that's going to help promote British aviation, I think. Uh, I'm hoping that more, more people will look at that. Rather than being so prohibitive to get into the air, um, more people have got lots of great ideas out there. The British are the world leaders for new ideas. We need to encourage that in this industry. And the more British companies that step forward, perhaps one day we can have another farmer where the only aircraft there are British. And that hasn't happened for many a decade, I'm sorry to say. At Flaps, we believe any podcast you can walk away from is a good podcast. The CAA has launched a consultation to get your views on the airspace change decision-making process. They're really keen for everyone to take part, not least GA pilots, as we're the ones often affected by changes to airspace. Joining us now is Tim Johnson, the Policy Director for the CAA. So, Tim, what's this all about? The Civil Aviation Authority makes decisions about formal airspace change proposals that come forward from 
uh, you know, airports uh, where they want to change change airspace. And uh, we've launched major consultation proposing some changes as to how we make those decisions. Uh, and we're encouraging um, local communities affected by aviation noise and the aviation community, including GA, uh, to engage with this consultation and really let us know what they think about our proposals. So, Tim, why has this come about? Why, why now? Why are you having this consultation? Well, we recognise that um, airspace is an important uh, issue for many uh, many stakeholders. There have been a number of major airspace changes um, of late, and we, um, you know, recognise that. Uh, um, it, it was proving quite an interesting issue and one in which many stakeholders wanted to engage. So we commissioned Helios, who are an independent consultancy, to conduct a review of how, how, how we made our decisions. And they made a set of proposals around how, how we could be more transparent um, in how we go about making those decisions. And therefore, we've you know, taken those recommendations um, on board and um, reflected those in the consultation that we've published um, this week. I suppose the fear is, isn't it, as, as the GA community, that this would mean a lot less availability of airspace for the GA community to use. Is, is that likely? Is that the likely outcome of this? Um, this consultation isn't about individual decisions. This consultation is about how, how we go about making the decisions, the process that we use, the evidence that we collect, um, how we're open and transparent about the, 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 the proposal and the evidence we get back from a number of stakeholders. So really, this is about listening to everybody's opinion. Yes, absolutely. So this isn't so because I just noticed you mentioned local communities affected by aircraft noise. Often people who don't like this kind of thing are very vocal about this, aren't they? So I guess what you're saying is, as a GA community, if you feel quite strongly, then you should make your voice heard as well. Um, absolutely. We would encourage all stakeholders um, involved in, in airspace to let us know what, what they think about the proposals, um, including GA, who we are absolutely well aware um, are you know, very interested in airspace issues um, generally and also about how we go about making our decisions. There is quite a lot to this, isn't there? There's quite a lot of it. We can't cover it all here because... Um well, it would go on for, long, for quite, for quite <laughs> a long time, and it's quite technical, but very important stuff. If, if people want to find out more and read about it, where do they go, Tim? They can go to the CA website, so that's caa.co.uk, and go to the consultations page, and the document um, is set out there. Um, we have tried really hard to make it as um, accessible as possible in terms of um, structured questions, but written in a very accessible way. Um, and there's a um, sort of a very structured questionnaire which sits behind uh, sits behind that that takes uh, respondents through the individual issues one by one. Um, so we appreciate it's a long um, a, a longish document, um, but I think you know the views on all the issues and questions we've asked would be uh, you know really appreciated. And obviously, as we said, I mean we should point out again this is just a consultation at the moment, but ultimately the aim is to um, this consultation is about the process we use for making decisions uh, about how airspace is used. Um, and not about individual airspace changes at you know, any particular location, either have been uh, made in the past or, or expected in the future. This, this is about the process by which those decisions are taken. OK, so, but it's important for, for GA to speak up then if, uh, if they have an opinion. OK, Tim, fantastic. Thanks for explaining that to us and thanks for joining us on Flaps. Thank you. And the consultation is open now and closes on the 15th of June 2016. And you can find out more, as Tim said, at caa.co.uk. And the link is on the bottom right of the homepage there. So that's it for our Easter extravaganza. Hey, well done, Mark. Try another one. I think we've done extremely well. Brilliant. 
Are you finally getting the hang of this? I'm very excited to have another podcast finished. There you go. You finally cracked it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. Happy Easter and happy flying. We're ready for departure. Thanks for listening to Flaps. <laughs>